0: ...soon passed the United States as the global leader in deaths. Analysts say that the country wasn't prepared to handle the surge. Hospitals have been overwhelmed and there are acute shortages of oxygen, medicine and vaccines. The country is ruled by Narendra Modi of the Bharatiya Janta Party, the BJP. It's a Hindu nationalist party. It has come under wide criticism for its handling of the crisis. Noted Indian writer Arundhati Roy says, It is hard to convey the full depth and range of the trauma, chaos, and indignity that India's COVID catastrophe has inflicted. Meanwhile, Modi and his allies tell people not to complain. Our guest today is Joyti Ghosh. She's a renowned, award-winning economist and author. Her articles appear in major newspapers, journals, and magazines. She taught at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi for almost 35 years. She's now teaching at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. I talked with her on May 19th. Welcome to the program. Thank you. What has the pandemic revealed to you in terms of the global capitalist, political, and economic system? We knew that capitalism was already a very unequal and unjust system.
1: But I think the severity with which it has struck, especially the developing world now, and the extent to which it's exposed the flaws, has revealed how unequal and how unjust, and also how unsustainable it is. It is really a system under which humanity will not survive.
0: In an article in Dollars and Cents, you write, the COVID-19 pandemic is bringing home the fact that neoliberalism is posing a massive danger to public health and therefore to the very survival of societies. For those who may not know, explain the basic characteristics of neoliberal economics. And why is it called neoliberal? So neoliberalism is
1: supposed to be an extension of earlier liberal economics, which basically argued that markets should be allowed to function on their own without too much regulation and states should kind of get out of the way. Neoliberalism is an extreme version of that which really emerges as a major significant force in economic policymaking from about the 1980s onwards. But it's a mistake to think that it actually asks for states to withdraw. It's not about the withdrawal of the state. It's rather about using the power of the state to promote the interests of big capital. And so what we've seen in the phase of neoliberal globalization is that it's really a massive increase in state support to and protection of large capital in finance, in various other industries, vis-a-vis workers, vis-a-vis citizens, vis-a-vis ordinary people everywhere. What they do is that they will promote free markets when it suits large capital so that they can destroy small capital or destroy workers by, you know, making them compete against one another. Or they will promote concentrated markets and monopolies when it suits them, like the case of intellectual property rights and patents.
0: India's independence in 1947 is followed by a period of what is generally called the kind of liberal socialist economic programs. But in the early 1990s, it embraces neoliberalism. How has the country fared under this economic doctrine?
1: You know, in India, we already had some major development failures even before the neoliberal phase. We had a failure in terms of adequate food and nutrition for most of our population. In terms of a basic structural transformation, we were not able to move people out of low productivity activities in agriculture and services in terms of inadequate education and human development indicators. So we did have some development failures and those should have been corrected by a different strategy of reform than the one that was adopted. What we got from the 1990s onwards was the notion that the way to achieve growth and development was to promote large capital in the belief that it would then trickle down to the rest of the population. And therefore the idea was to subsidize, to provide incentives of different kinds to large capital in various ways and to improve their bargaining power. What happened is that we did get some growth, no doubt about it. The 2000s in particular was a decade of faster growth than before. Uh, But a lot of it was based really on what you could call the extractive industries, minerals and other things, uh, and uh, an appropriation of small capital rather than genuine investments in technology and uh, in productivity increases. And we did not get the required improvements in the conditions of living of the people. So even in that period of high growth, we didn't really get an improvement in the conditions of the bottom half of the population. Our nutrition indicators didn't improve. Our uh, basic health indicators didn't improve. And we still have some of the worst human development indicators in the world for many of these.
0: So the, the mantra that was uh, intoned time after time, Milton Friedman's, a rising tide will lift all boats, uh, didn't quite work.
1: Well, we know that a rising tide hasn't lifted all boats anywhere in the world. And that to do that, you need proactive public intervention, uh, which has to again come from demands from below that governments cannot refuse. So I would say India is a very stark example of that, where existing inequalities have been accentuated and deeply sharpened by economic processes that have further reduced the bargaining power of workers and peasants.
0: Well, you might also say that about the United States, which is arguably the world's richest uh, country, but is experiencing the greatest number of COVID-19 deaths. It seems like a contradiction.
1: Yes, uh, at one level it should be. I mean, now I think India will soon overtake the U.S. in terms of the number of COVID deaths. Yet the fact that U.S. suffered so terribly is a real indictment of its particular economic strategy. It shows that it has consistently undermined public health. We have countries like Vietnam that have fared so much better or Cuba, much, much poorer countries operating under many more difficult constraints that have fared so much better because of a better, more vibrant public health system that is accessible to all. The United States chose a terribly expensive and incompetent and inefficient system of health provision that has favored private profiteering over public health, and it has suffered because of that. And we see now that pandemics, which are ultimately public health concerns, which are also, by the way, going to become more and more frequent, we cannot even pretend that this was a once off and once we're over this hump, we're safe we see that lack of reliance or investment in a public health system has deep consequences, not just for inequality and the conditions of people, but for social resilience and even economic resilience.
0: Writer and author, social critic Arundhati Roy says, the state of India's hospitals and clinics, she says, the system has not collapsed. The system barely existed. What kind of services are available to the average uh, Indian, particularly in rural areas where uh, something like 70% the bulk of the population live?
1: First of all, I want to remind everyone in the United States that India is a country of subcontinental dimensions. Its population is bigger than that of the European Union. It is more diverse than the European Union in terms of languages, cultures. It has states, and people in different states fare very differently depending on what kinds of governments and resources they have. So to think of India as one whole and to think of the average Indian is very misleading. There are some states like Uttar Pradesh in the north, which have about the same population as the United States. And Uttar Pradesh at the moment is a disaster zone. It is a complete mess. It has always had a poor public health system. It is now run by a uh, government that is openly and aggressively trying to underplay and pretend that none of this is happening and is instead of investing its resources in trying to save people from this incredible spread of disease and disaster is going after anyone who points out that people are dying is going after those who go onto social media saying i need help please get me oxygen it is trying to arrest such people so it's doing exactly the opposite of what needs to be done in addition to the crime of encouraging major super spreader events like a major Hindu festival that was brought forward by a full year and collected four million people on the banks of the river Ganges and therefore was a massive super spreader event. After doing all that, it is then attacking those who are pointing out that people are dying. We now have the spectacle of thousands of bodies floating down the river or just abandoned on the banks by people who are too poor to even pay for cremations. It is a disaster of unbelievable proportions. We don't even know the full extent of it because this disease has now spread to rural areas. And there, is, there are barely any medical facilities to track not just the disease, but even the deaths. So it's an appalling situation. By contrast, there are other states, for example, in the south, Kerala, for sure, but even Tamil Nadu, where the health systems are much better, where, yes, the disease is spreading, but the proportion of deaths is much lower, where there are attempts to contain this, where the state government is actively going out there trying to administer support to those who are deprived of livelihoods and those who are bereft. And so it's a very different situation. I would not say that it's the same, that there is an average situation in India. Certainly, in large parts of the country, it's an absolute disaster. And this has to do very much with the policies of the central government, which is currently missing in action, having created much of the problem. The complacency of the central government, there is now documented evidence that its medical advisors were telling it from February and March that there are real dangers of the new variants spreading, from Maharashtra and other states, and that we have to be careful. They ignored all of these. They suppressed these. They encouraged super spreader events. The prime minister went to big election rallies and celebrated the fact that there were hundreds of thousands of people attending these election rallies. They did everything they could to actually encourage the spread of the disease attending big public events without masking, without social distancing of any kind, without any protection and leading people to believe that everything was solved. Bragging about how India had solved the problem when in fact we had, we were just lucky in the first wave. There was nothing that the government did. It was real luck that allowed the first wave to come down without serious deaths and almost taunting other countries, saying that we have done so well in this that we are exporting vaccines. Without doing the basic arithmetic of considering your population, how many vaccines you will need, what kind of production you have planned for, whether you have allowed other companies to produce it within the country so that we will have enough vaccines for our own population. So the degrees of incompetence and mismanagement, I think, are matched only by what we now see as complete callousness. And even cruelty towards the people who are suffering as a result.
0: The images are heartbreaking. Both you and I know of people who have uh, passed away or are suffering from uh, COVID nineteen. You mentioned the uh, Hindu festival, the Kumbh Mela. Apparently, it was advanced a year on the advice of an astrologer. Is that that's correct? right? That's right. Unbelievable, but true. So
1: see, on top of everything else, we have a government that openly devalues science. So these astrologers could not predict the pandemic, but apparently they can predict that it will be good for the government to have this Kumbh Mela held this year. Now, in normal conditions, you would have actually postponed a major event like this. You could have postponed it by a year, even if it were meant to be held this year. Instead of which, you bring it forward by a full year. Because you're so complacent and arrogant. You think that you've solved this whole COVID thing, that you're unlike the rest of the world. There's Indian exceptionalism in this regard, which of course turned out to be completely misplaced. But having done that, you then change the chief minister of the state because he says, don't do this big festival this year. You change that chief minister, put in somebody who will be, go along with your wishes and we all can see the result. We also have open anti-science behavior because there are still members of the ruling party and ministers of the government who are going around claiming that cow dung and cow urine can help to deal with or either prevent or deal with and treat this disease. And when people have protested and written against that, they are the ones who are being arrested under the National Investigation Agency. So it's an extraordinary reversal of any kind of scientific protocols. And it's this, uh, I mean, I don't know what we have done as a country to get a government that would give us this kind of unscientific and brutal approach to a pandemic. But this is what we have now. In addition to the lack of health facilities, we are seeing that there is no attention to the livelihood crisis. We are getting terrifying uh, reports of the increase in hunger even over the last year. Surveys that were done in October 2020 have found dramatic increases in hunger and undernutrition among ordinary people, even those who are not classified as poor. This was in October. After that, we've had a second wave. We've had another set of closures and lockdowns. We've had more loss of livelihood, more decline in nominal wages, more loss of employment. So what is happening to hunger now is terrifying. And yet we don't see the government making any real efforts. There's a half-hearted gesture of providing some free grain only to those who have a particular kind of ration card under the National Food Security Act which leaves out at least 150 million people who also need this free food. And that's it. There's no mention of livelihood compensation. There's no mention of anything that would provide people the
0: basics with which to live. Well, when you mentioned uh, a regime that has uh, anti-science tendencies, that resonates with the United States of America and its uh, recently departed 45th president uh, as well. But um, I recall the prime minister at the uh, Davos meeting of elites in in late January uh, boasting about uh, how well the virus has been uh, contained and that uh, others could learn from uh, what India has done. Can you comment on that? Well,
1: I think, you know, that speaks for itself. And this, by the way, was in the face of scientific advice given to him by his own advisors. So it was a complete riding roughshod over all of the serious analysts who were looking at this, who had observed the fact that there is an increase in cases coming from a new variant, that that has a potential to cause problems. Despite that, you seize on this because it is part of promoting a global image. And one thing this government has been very good at is promoting the global image. And it's really all about perception management, even within India and outside India, its focus is perception management. Unfortunately, now the reality is so severe that it is, it's a tsunami over that particular set of perception management. But that is really all that it has focused all its attention, resources, and even its bureaucratic powers on. The only meeting the Prime Minister has had with all the secretaries of the government of India in the last three months, the only one single meeting, has been devoted to telling them how to deal with the bad publicity that is coming and how to promote positivity in terms of (laughs) not COVID positive, but positivity about how well the government is doing in managing this.
0: In an article you wrote for the journal uh, Samaj, The article is entitled Hindutva, Economic Neoliberalism and the Abuse of Economic Statistics uh, in India. Uh, You've written, the ability of the government to persuade the public that the economy is doing well or that adverse outcomes are not the result of its own policy actually serves the neoliberal agenda by taming the resentment of the poor and enabling further concentration of wealth. The Modi government, and you mentioned this a few moments ago, the Modi government is focused on the management of perception rather than on actually developing and implementing economic policies that would benefit the people. In this regard, manipulation and or destruction of the statistical system are decisive, which is why an aggressive attitude to economic statistics has become one of the defining features of the government.
1: I could give you many examples. Uh, The national accounts data has been manipulated with a new base year and changed in ways that would inflate the estimates of income, especially those coming from the industrial sector. And there are many reasons why there are overestimates. I could, you know, there are lots of experts who have commented on this, so I don't want to go into it further, but it's fair to say it's an overestimate. The consumption surveys, which used to be conducted every five years, The one that was conducted in 2017 was just simply suppressed. It wasn't published. A leaked report, because it was already and available and had been approved by the statistical agency, the leaked report shows us that there was an absolute decline in consumption, largely because of the impact of other ill-planned moves like demonetization and a very poorly implemented goods and services tax. But in 2017, there was a decline in consumption compared to six years earlier. They didn't like that outcome so they just simply suppressed the data so we have no consumption data what does that mean we don't have data on poverty for the first time in independent india we have no idea how poverty has moved since 2011-12 simply because they have refused to look at that data and if you don't know how poverty has moved then of course you can you can you're not going to do anything about it what does that mean in terms of perceptions people who are themselves suffering feel that maybe that's their own situation that's just their individual problem or maybe it's the problem of their state government or their locality or something like that or maybe they're unlucky they don't realize that this is a much broader process that is affecting many many millions of people and the majority of the population and that's really the way this works so that you can keep feeding a particular narrative and everyone who's experiencing a different reality will think that that's only their own personal reality rather than a broader process
0: Talk about the media and its coverage of the pandemic, and is it holding uh, the Prime Minister and top officials like Amit Shah and others accountable to the current crisis? I think one of the big differences of the
1: US and India, even when you had your 45th president, is that your media, mainstream media, had not completely succumbed. You still had media that were trying to represent a more objective reality. In India, the mainstream media completely succumbed. And it was a mixture of blandishments and threats that did it. But it was very effective. Mainstream media was almost always just presenting the official line. And there was very strict monitoring of what the mainstream media reported. Some of it was voluntary, and a lot of it was enforced. But nonetheless, it was very much the case. So for the last seven years, I would say until just a few months ago, we've really had a complete mismatch between the ground reality or any kind of reality and what mainstream media reports. There have been a few brave outliers, mostly online media, who require very few resources and therefore have been able to somehow sustain, even though they face continuous daily threats. Most of them have cases against them, most of them are denied any kinds of resources, and You know, they're prevented from even accessing private resources because anybody who donates to them is immediately identified and threatened. So it's really they're operating under tremendously difficult circumstances. So mainstream media has been largely in the service of this government. In the last couple of months, the disaster has gone so acute. The catastrophe is so major and extreme that a little bit that has changed. Uh, Also because these are people who are themselves losing. There is not a family I know that has not lost someone. Uh, I have colleagues who have died because they couldn't get oxygen. I have lost children of my friends who have not got treatment in time. So I think this has happened across the board and it's also affected mainstream media. It's even affected owners. It's affected everybody. So I think this has caused a bit of a change. And, you know, you beyond the point, you cannot hide the fact that there are bodies floating down a river that there are 1000s of bodies just piled up along the banks, because people are so desperate and so distraught that they cannot even afford to light the fire to cremate them. All of this cannot be hidden beyond the point. So I think there's a little bit of a change. Nonetheless, mainstream media has still not pointed fingers where it should be pointed, which is at the central leadership.
0: And again, That's because the climate of fear persists. And the government, I understand, has made it more difficult for foreign entities or individuals to send money to India to help people, to support support NGOs. What's that about?
1: Well, basically, the Modi government put in a whole range of very, very restrictive requirements on all those who receive foreign funds, all the non-governmental organizations, making it almost impossible to function. The the rules are so restrictive that most organizations basically would have to either close shop or dramatically reduce their activities. And that's because these were the places where you could get some independent, you know, support and some independent thinking, or even, you know, grassroots movements pro- demanding the rights of people, whether it is land rights or workers' rights or women's rights or whatever. Having done that, then of course, when it comes to the need for welfare, the government is refusing to work, provide welfare. It's telling the NGOs, now you provide welfare, but you have destroyed those NGOs. They don't have money. They don't have resources. So you are not, they are not able to do what is required, provide the relief, which the government should be providing and is not providing. So they, they tied their own hands in a sense. They are unwilling to provide what is minimally required and yet at the same time they will not let others do it. In this latest crisis in Delhi, when there was some who anyway individually went out and tried to help in whatever way, providing oxygen cylinders, looking for hospital beds, trying to get, they have been under attack. Police have registered cases against them. So it's extraordinary that, you know, one of the phrases that the prime minister used to great effect when he was a campaigner was, Nakaunga Nakanedunga, I will not take bribes effectively. I will not take is the literal. I will not eat and I will not let others take bribes. I will not let others eat. that now people are saying, well, nakarunga, dunga. I will not do anything myself, I will not let others do anything either which is a terrifying situation for a country to be, where your state is effectively not doing the minimal things that governments have to do. And yet it's not letting others, it's not letting civil society rise up to that challenge and do it either. It's, it's an, an extraordinary dystopia that we're in at the moment.
0: That's joyti Ghosh on India's COVID catastrophe. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get copies of this program and for our special book offer, Noam Chomsky's Consequences of Capitalism. Our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free printed transcript, MP3, or PDF of this program, just give us a call at one 800 one nine seven seven. It's reported that of India's 1.3 billion people, that about only 3% have been fully vaccinated. How is that possible in a country that is a major producer of vaccines? I believe two of its uh, large organizations. You know, uh, there are several things that
1: have been done to destroy what was a very robust system of production and distribution of vaccines. India is not just the largest producer of vaccines in the world. It was also we had the best universal immunization system, a 70-year-old system where workers will go house to house to immunize against polio, to do the BCG vaccines and so on. We had a very good, effective functioning system of free universal vaccination. The Modi government, first of all, did not do its basic math in terms of looking at the population, looking at the requirement of vaccines and ensuring that there would be enough production. There is one homegrown vaccine which was produced with the Indian Council of Medical Research. It was licensed to only one producer, which is ridiculous. You could have licensed it to 10 producers. There are eight public sector companies. There are many other drug companies willing to produce this vaccine. You could have licensed it to many producers to make sure there is enough. To meet the needs of the population. You didn't do that. Only one favored producer. And of course, the Serum Institute of India, which has a deal with AstraZeneca and various others. But it's not possible for two companies alone to meet the needs, as you mentioned, of 1.3 billion, or even of 70% of the population. You have to have more producers. The Indian government could have done the compulsory licensing for at least one of the vaccines, not the AstraZeneca one, but the other one. But it did not do that. It has now done that, which is going to take another six months before those vaccines are available for distribution. Having done that, it then assumed that it was going to only need a tiny amount of vaccines and it could actually export. So in addition to the requirements for COVAX, which the Serum Institute had already committed to, it exported a lot of vaccines commercially and some for free as a sort of goodwill gesture to some poor countries. This is without taking into account the needs of the local population. So there were many mistakes made at many different levels, not producing enough, not uh, enabling vaccines that were produced locally to be distributed locally in the first instance to meet the requirements of the population. And then worst of all, 17th of April, they announced a whole new vaccination strategy Instead of a government, central government procurement and distribution of vaccines to all the states, according to their population, suddenly it was thrown open. The central government will only vaccinate frontline health workers and people above 65. Everybody else, the state governments have to deal with. And for the 18 to 45 age group, they can go to private providers who can compete for these vaccines from the same limited production. They can compete with state governments for these vaccines. It's unbelievable and it makes absolutely no sense in the middle of a pandemic to throw this open to price gouging by private pharma at a time. And so what state governments were paying four times, six times what the central government pays, private producers who knows what they're paying. And you know, to get the vaccine, one dose of the vaccine costs about $30, which is impossible in a poor country like India. So the absolute ludicrousness and complete, you know, completely wrong vaccination policy that was suddenly introduced on the 17th of April has thrown the whole system into complete uh, complete mess because the rate of vaccination which was going up has now dramatically declined after this new policy was announced. Why? Because the Companies are hoarding the vaccines, trying to sell to the highest bidder. State governments cannot buy it. Private companies are managing to buy some. Private uh, clinics are buying some, uh, quickly distributing it, not able to get the next lot. It's a complete mess. None of this was necessary. And it is unthinkable how or on whose advice the government did this extraordinary system, which has actually destroyed what was a very successful universal immunization program.
0: Talk about uh, COVAX, another uh, acronym, it's International Vaccine Sharing Scheme. Do you think it's a good thing? Is it Has it been effective?
1: The COVAX is a facility set up by the World Health Organization, by the Vaccine Alliance, GAVI, and by the uh, Council for Epidemiological Preparedness. So it's a joint program which will buy vaccines and distribute. So in a sense, the idea is good, which is that you pool together vaccine procurement, rather than get all this competitive buying and so on, you pool it together and then you distribute it equitably. The idea was that you distribute first 3% of the population, then to 20% of the population, and then to everybody. There were two major design flaws in COVAX, and some people argue that that's, because COVAX had too much disproportionate influence of pharma producers. One was that it is underfunded hugely. It would need a minimum of 26 to 30 billion dollars in the first year. It's got only about I think 4.3 billion or something. It's ridiculous. It's very underfunded. But more importantly COVAX did not prevent governments who are members from doing side deals. So what happened that governments said, yes, yes, we'll join COVAX, but they also went and did side deals with private pharma. And so you had the rich countries doing, you know, deals for many times what their population needed. The U.S. did, I think, four times what its population needed, the European Union three times, Canada up to 10, 11 times. It's a different matter that they were not able to get those vaccines, but the point is they had already grabbed these orders, which really meant developing countries didn't have a chance, and nor did COVAX because these orders, the private deals are opaque. We don't know how much who is paying for each one, but WHO estimates that the price can go up to 40, $44 per dose. So obviously vaccine companies are more interested in selling privately, separately to these countries than they are to, you know, giving to COVAX, as a result of which COVAX, even with its limited funds, has not been able to procure as much as it needs, even for its initial commitments. So everybody's blaming uh, the Serum Institute of India for not fulfilling its COVAX commitments. And I think that's true and that's valid. But why are these other companies not even making COVAX commitments? Why, do, why don't you get after you know, Pfizer and Astra, uh, and uh, Moderna and Johnson & Johnson for not even making COVAX commitments, instead selling privately to rich country governments?
0: Well, those big uh, big pharma corporations you just mentioned are making a killing on uh, vaccines. Now China and Russia have developed their own uh, vaccines. What do you know about them and have they been relatively successful?
1: Yes. In fact, China has exported more vaccines than any other country. There are two vaccines of China, Sinovac and Sinopharm, which are apparently uh, quite effective. Sinopharm has very recently received WHO regulatory approval. I should mention that Uh, The WHO regulatory system privileges the vaccines produced in rich countries because all the other producers have to go through a very complicated and prolonged bureaucratic procedure. So both the uh, Gamalea Institute's Sputnik V and Sinopharm and also Sinovac, they all applied for regulatory approval before Pfizer and Moderna. But Pfizer and Moderna got their approval by late October. Sinopharm has just got its approval. The others still haven't. Uh, That has not stopped some countries who are in desperate need from asking for those vaccines anyway. So Chile's relative success in vaccination is really because of its reliance on Chinese vaccines. Uh, A bunch of other countries in the Middle East have also heavily relied on Chinese vaccines these are cheaper these many cases in developing countries they're being provided free and instead of celebrating that i think that's a good thing i think we should be providing as much vaccine as possible to as many countries as possible the same rich countries that are hoarding their own vaccines and are preventing other countries from accessing and are preventing their companies from sharing the technology are telling Developing countries don't use the Chinese and Russian vaccines.
0: They're not to be trusted. They're not safe I find that extraordinary The New York Times says India is experiencing quote the world's worst coronavirus outbreak But there are also other hot spots that are just suddenly appearing for example in neighboring Nepal uh, Also in Argentina has become a hotspot. How do you see this? Pandemic being uh, contained and coming at least uh, manageable to some extent. So you see, this is the point that it's a cliche now because all these
1: world leaders keep mouthing it like world peace. They say no one is safe till everyone is safe. Unfortunately, they don't seem to believe their own words, but they are true. That is the situation. That is the nature of a pandemic. Today, it's India, and as you mentioned, Nepal, and it's also spreading in Bangladesh. It's also spreading in Southeast Asia, which had controlled it completely. We are seeing new variants emerge in Latin America. Africa is going to be a very likely new hotspot. And these are all parts of the world that are hardly vaccinated, where there's a very tiny minority that has received vaccination. The more you allow this to happen, the more you will get new variants and the more those variants can come back and even threaten the vaccinated populations. I don't understand why the world leaders who keep saying this don't seem to get it and do something in terms of their own policy, because what can be done is so obvious and easy. It's low hanging fruit. Force the companies who have received your technology, your financial support, to share that knowledge with other producers. There are producers in Canada, in Israel, in the Philippines, in Bangladesh, in Chile, in Brazil, who are willing to make it. Force them to share this technology. Force much enhanced production. Distribute your surplus vaccines. The United States is sitting on 60 million AstraZeneca doses it will never use. Immediately distribute Give it to COVAX. Give it to countries that need it. I think it's all obvious that what needs to be done. Yet the same global leaders who keep saying this and all of their statements and communiques, obviously they're just saying this as a completely meaningless statement. They don't actually understand what they're saying. If they understood it, they would take these measures which are so obvious and so evident. Suspend intellectual property during the pandemic. Because that's the only way you will actually deal with the pandemic. It's a minimum necessary condition for all the other stuff.
0: The tiny minority vaccinated that you mentioned is, of course, concentrated in the global north exclusively. Backtrack a little bit to the uh, Russian vaccine, the the Sputnik. How effective has that proven to be? So the evidence we
1: have so far is that it's quite effective. I think it's, what, 75% effective. I'm not sure about the exact numbers, but uh, recent studies that have come out in the Lancet and in science have suggested that it is really quite effective. It has yet to receive WHO regulatory approval, unfortunately, but uh, nonetheless, it is being uh, used in a number of countries and it has expanded. It's actually gone into production sharing agreements in several developing countries. So we'll have to see. But at this point, I would say the WHO should certainly up its game in terms of the regulatory processes, which are very prolonged for vaccines from certain countries and the rich countries. I mean, it's now it's on their plate. The G7 have to put their actions where their mouth has been for the last one year.
0: President Biden Uh, recently announced an additional uh, 20 million uh, doses to be given to what countries that that was not uh, specified. But one critic uh, has called this uh, trying to put a um, bucket of water on a raging fire. Yes, but it's not just that. It's also that you have maybe, you know,
1: 100 buckets of water and you're giving one. I think it's a little obscene that the U.S. government is sitting on all these surplus stockpiles of vaccines. 60 million AstraZeneca, God knows how many Pfizer and Moderna. You're stockpiling them, you're hoarding vaccines, and then you're giving a little small share of that to some... I mean, I
0: I don't understand it, I really
1: don't. I think history will judge this very harshly.
0: The Russian and the Chinese vaccines, are they privately controlled or are these government... Based. The Chinese companies are
1: publicly owned companies. So uh, they're both produced, I think, by one public sector company. And there's another one that is also developing another two vaccine candidates. Gamalea Institute, it's a little more complicated. I think it's done with the assistance of private venture capital, but with also state support. But we have to remember that even the private companies in the advanced countries all received massive government support. AstraZeneca is a striking example of a vaccine that was produced in a lab that is publicly funded and run through charities, okay, in Oxford University. The original intent of this Oxford vaccine was that it would be completely publicly available. They were going to put everything on the website for everyone to access. Midway through the process in June 2020, the Gates Foundation, which is a big funder of Oxford University, stepped in and ensured that this became a private deal between Oxford and AstraZeneca, which had had no role in the development of the vaccine. Let me reiterate, no role. So all the stuff that Big Pharma tells us that we only have these vaccines because Big Pharma has done all this investment in R&D, this is nonsense. And so it became the intellectual property of AstraZeneca through this unfortunate side deal that was done by Oxford University for something that was developed in a public research lab. Similarly, we know that the Pfizer vaccine was not developed by Pfizer. It was developed by BioNTech, which got a lot of money from the German government, which basically funded its R&D costs. And it was then a private deal entered into between BioNTech and uh, Pfizer, which has enabled Pfizer to make, I think an estimated 24 billion in profits in this current year way in excess of its total R&D costs, all costs, Pfizer's own estimation is 4 billion. So we are talking about monopoly super profits being made on the basis of knowledge that was done through public research and public funding. Remember also that both the mRNA vaccines and Moderna got 1.6 billion from the US government. It promised not to profit from any of these vaccines. We don't know how that is working out because it's charging different prices to different uh, (laughs) buyers. But the mRNA technology was essentially developed by a Hungarian scientist in a public lab and then developed further in US public labs. So it's the last mile effort that was done by these companies using public support. So let's not kid ourselves that this was all private companies doing this and that the government is coming in late on this. This was really the public sector completely enabling and funding the development of these vaccines, yet all the cards are currently being held by these private companies.
0: It's interesting because, as you well know, in the United States, there's been massive state, that is to say public, intervention in the economy which is supposed to be quote unquote a free market system it's hardly free market when you have billions of dollars in research and development funded by taxpayers leading to the internet uh, gps technology uh, polio vaccines subsidies to fossil fuel corporations uh, and the like so it's a peculiar type of capitalism uh, that has elements of of can we call it socialism
1: so my colleague bob Polin says that this is champagne socialism for the rich and uh, you know predatory capitalism for the poor uh, but it's really that's what neoliberalism is all about as i said it is not about the withdrawal of the state it's not about leaving markets on their own it's all about protecting big capital protecting, supporting, incentivizing and rewarding big capital. That's what neoliberalism is about.
0: But that intervention is very
1: selective. It's for big capital. So when finance is in a crisis, you save the big banks, you bail them out, you use taxpayer money to save them. You don't bail out the small mortgages. You don't bail out the people who lose their homes. You don't bail out workers.
0: Bill Gates has, of course, made quite a name for himself and a bit of money on the side. He was has spoken very forcefully against waiving of uh, patents. He thinks that would be a very bad idea. What is Gates's role in this whole situation? The little
1: that I have seen of the Gates, uh, Bill Gates intervention in health, I think there are many, many serious concerns He was instrumental, as I mentioned, in the move to shift Oxford University to a separate deal with AstraZeneca. He has been a forceful uh, proponent of intellectual property at the time when he also has major investments in drug companies. How such serious conflicts of interest can be tolerated, accepted and taken for granted is something that boggles the mind. That people who are so influential in a public health discourse have direct commercial interests through their shareholding and and other things in the companies that would benefit from that. Surely this would not be allowed in many systems. And yet we are in this peculiar world where this is
0: accepted as something normal. We've talked about equity and distribution. Uh, Top White House advisor, Anthony Fauci said, the only way that you're going to adequately respond to a global pandemic is by having a global response. And a global response means equity throughout the world. So there's at least one scientist who understands the nature of the crisis and the absolute necessity to have vaccine equity. There's no safe place if we don't have it. You know, Dr.
1: Fauci has said this and it's very important and it's very good. But you know, all these leaders say this, G7 communicates say this all the time. When it comes to action and what you can do about it, somehow that is lacking. And I think
0: that is extremely unfortunate. The Guardian uh, Weekly recently wrote, as vaccine programs enable rich societies to open, the poorer nations are bearing the brunt. What about uh, what's happening in the global south? Of the 700 million vaccines distributed, only 0.2% have gone to what are called low-income countries. And the WHO reports 46 million asylum seekers, migrants, and refugees have been totally excluded from vaccination programs. You know,
1: vaccine apartheid is so striking globally and in this way that we have mentioned. That it's also now, I mean, you know, it's almost interesting to see how this is now playing out into the next phase, which was almost inevitable. The vaccine passports, the European Union has just announced. fully vaccinated people with the acceptable vaccines. Please note, not the Chinese vaccine, not any other vaccine, but the accepted vaccines. Those vaccinated persons are free to come. So you're really getting this peculiar reversal back to the colonial period where the white men could roam the world as they pleased and everybody else, their movements were either restricted or constrained or determined by those white men. So we're back to a very colonial world which has been actively supported by the capital of its time, just as the colonialism of that time was supported by capital of that time.
0: Your dollars and cents uh, article was in fact entitled Neoliberalism as Neo-Colonialism,"
1: And now we see it openly. Now there's no pretense about it anymore.
0: You know, I'm reminded of uh, Kurtz's Dying words in Joseph Conrad's uh, Heart of Darkness, the horror, the horror. Yes. Well, neocolonialism also has led to, well, according to Prabhat Patnaik, who has also been featured uh, on alternative radio, he said that this uh, neoliberalism has also led to neo fascism uh, around the world, where uh, governments have veered far to the right. Do you see a connection between those two? I think it's very hard
1: for neoliberalism to persist with democracy. We see that all over the world. I think in the United States, you dodged a bullet. You still have a lot of threats to your democracy. But it's also interesting to note that because you managed to dodge that bullet, there are various ways in which within your own country, you're trying to undo some of the worst effects of neoliberalism. But everywhere else, it's really not compatible with democracy. I think we've seen that over and over again.
0: Some months ago, you wrote, I'm quoting, is the current apparently passive fatalistic attitude of the oppressed millions the sign of a new subjugation or simply a lull before the storm?
1: I don't really pretend to understand politics anymore. I think I used to have a much more materialist conception of politics and I recognize now that all kinds of other things can sway people, whether it is notions of social justice or it is identities of various kinds, or it's just hate can sway people and how they vote and who they support and so on. However, I also do have a fundamental belief that humanity steps back from the brink. And let's admit it, we are at the brink. We are at a brink, the pandemic has brought us to a brink, but we also face a much greater existential challenge in the form of climate change, which is going to get worse and worse. And it's really a question of survival. If humanity is to survive, it will have to step back. And that really means the people themselves have to shake off all of these other things and focus on the things that will enable humanity to survive. If that is the case, then I do believe that things can change. And I also believe that change often comes from directions where you don't expect it. Uh, so we may be looking at, I don't know, the opposition in a particular country and say, oh, that opposition hasn't got its act together. It's not unified. It's all over the place. It doesn't command this respect of the people. So it's not going to succeed. Maybe the change will come from a different direction. And this has been the case in the past, that's why I'm saying it. So I do believe change will come. I hope I'm alive to see it. I also believe that humanity will step back from the brink.
0: What can individuals who are listening to you and your analysis of, of the current crisis, what can they do and what can be done collectively?
1: Ultimately, all change happens collectively. It doesn't happen to individuals. So I think the first thing individuals have to note is that they are not little islands and Robinson Crusoe's who can make things happen on their own. So a lot, I find a lot of the progressive energy here goes into how you live your own life. You know, whether you are, shall we say, ecologically correct and politically correct in your own life. I think that's that's good and that's important but it it doesn't do much in terms of broader social change. So I think the importance of the collective, of collective action, of working with other people, of forming coalitions, of being part of progressive movements, of recognizing the importance of numbers and seeking to expand those numbers. I think that's very important. And wherever there has been progressive change, it's come from people who recognize that.
0: Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, David. That was Joyti Ghosh on India's COVID catastrophe. I talked with her on May 19th. Joyti Ghosh is a renowned economist and award-winning author. She taught at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi for almost 35 years. She currently teaches at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and progressive and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Joy Tigosh on India's COVID catastrophe, and for Noam Chomsky's book, Consequences of Capitalism, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go on our website, alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free copy of a printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners, who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there
1: <speaking in Spanish> Ok, Bonzo and hello. And welcome to CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Chantal Chagnon. I am Cree, Ojibwe, and Métis from Muskeg Lake Cree Nation in Saskatchewan, which is in Treaty 6 territory. But I'd like to acknowledge the land upon which we stand, because if you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going. This is the home of the Treaty 7 people. The Nitsitapi, or Blackfoot, of Siksika, Gainai, and Pagani. The Beaver people of Tsutsina. And the Stony Nakota of Morley, which includes Chiniki, Bears Paw, and Wesley First Nations. We also acknowledge Métis Region Three, for we are walking in their footsteps. Hi, hi. <speaking> in <Spanish>
0: him as he's never been seen before it's a smash hit